Over the past few weeks, uh, really through the month of October, we've been on this journey of exploring this character and nature of God. And I know for me, uh, this has been a challenging, enlightening, and revealing journey. Uh, It has been one of those as I've studied, God has shown me areas in my life where I have defined him according to my view of God and what I think God ought to be, more so than who God has actually revealed himself to be. And I I just even catch myself sometimes on a daily basis uh, being reminded that, you know, no, that's... That's your little God, Patrick, that you're trying to, to raise up instead of actually submitting to and viewing as the authority, the true God of the Bible that we've been studying. And so uh, he has pointed out to me times in my life when I've really uh, fallen short. And I'm excited about that because God's word, God's word teaches us. It challenges us. It changes us. And it's not just something that we open up on Sunday mornings and look at something and try to figure out exactly what it says. It's actually something that it even says it penetrates our hearts and it actually begins to take root in our lives and then bring fruit into how we live. And uh, this series, I know, has done that for me. One, one of the things that I've loved about God as I've continued to look at this series and think about it, uh, there's just a, a few things that pop out to me. One is that you know, God is this eternal, supernatural nature. I mean, he is forever and ever, and he is above all things. I mean, he is literally incomprehensible. And you're saying, well, then why are we even doing a study on this, right? Why are we trying to study the character of God if he is incomprehensible? It's just that he is so large, so vast, so deep, so rich in character that we can never explore the depths of who he is. It's kind of like the vastness of space, right? I mean, I, I really don't understand this. I tried to pull up something that would help me understand or explain the vastness of space. And the only thing that I thought that I could put into some kind of quantitative thing for us to see is, is this. I, I read a thing that said one million Earths could fit into our sun. All right, so you take one million Earths, that would just fill up our sun and in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, there are 300 billion stars, like our sun. So 300 billion of these things that hold a million of our planets. And then in the known galaxy, the observable universe that we have, there are 1 billion galaxies like our, like our Milky Way. So if we just figured out how many Earths could like fill up all those stars, it would be 1 with 28 zeros on the back end. Like, I think that was called octillion when I looked it up. Is, uh, but it, a huge, immeasurable number. It's just vast. It's something we can never comprehend. We can never explore if we were spent every moment of every waking moment that we had doing it. And that's the character and nature of God. And so it makes me think, well, is God just not knowable? But there's something else about God this study has really revealed to us, and it's this. It's not that he's just eternal and supernatural. He's also present and knowable. He's with us, and we can engage with him. He is not this removed, distant God. There, There is no part of him that is actually hidden from us. It's just more than we can ever explore. And so what I'm hoping that this series has allowed us and And this last part of it will allow us to do is simply give us some on-ramps 
by which we'll be able to explore God's nature together and individually. So when we look back and talk about God as light and this luminous nature of God, it'll help us, that's an on-ramp to begin to explore more of who God is or his righteousness, that God is always right and always just. It's an on-ramp to understand more of who he is or that he's virtuous and that what he does is always right is another on-ramp. Or, or last week, you know, we talked about this loving, amorous nature of God is another way for just us to engage in understanding that God is our Lord and Savior. And it's just a way for us to study and to learn more. And that idea of Savior that I just mentioned is where we're actually going to focus today. And that's the aspect of God, this aspect of him being part of our Savior uh, that we're going to look at. So if you've got your Bibles, First John 5, verse 4 is where we're going to start at uh, today. And it'll be up on the screens, but if you want to follow along on your phones or iPads or actual paper printed Bibles, you can do that uh, as well. So uh, verse 4 in First John 5 says this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So today the focus of the concept that we're going to look at of God is this, is this overcoming nature of God, and this idea is God is victorious. God is victorious. I want you to hear something. He is victorious. I want to make that very clear this morning. God day is not God is not one day going to be victorious he is victorious now god is not in a battle he's not trying to overcome the enemy we're not on the brink of defeat god hasn't lost ground god has won the game is over there is no review or replay necessary it's over it's done god is victorious and that sounds exciting and we can stand up and cheer you know but the truth is when we say that i if you're like me, my mind immediately goes, well, hold on. That, that's not the way the world plays out. Like, there's still bad stuff that's happening in this world. You know, what about all the evil in the world? What about the bad things that happen? Isn't this world, our country, our lives getting worse instead of better? You know, I, these last few months as we move toward this election, I don't think we would say it has been the best years of our life. It best, feels like years. It's been like weeks and months, you know. But we, we're moving toward this thing. We're moving toward things in our life that we go, is this good or bad? And why is this evil? This seems like a legitimate thought from our perspective. Again, when we paint God with our own brush, we can often portray him as this man in this cosmic battle. Him and Satan are in the heavens battling it out. And some days God's win, God wins and we rejoice. Another day Satan wins and evil is thrown down on us. And the next day it's back and forth and they're wrestling. And we can you know, just experience our life is affected by it. And one day God will finally, ultimately triumph and win this cosmic battle. This sounds like an incredible movie that Jamal ought to produce, you know, and, and direct. But the truth is, it'd actually be a pretty boring movie because the victory is never in doubt. It's not up for debate. It's done. It will never be in doubt. And that's when it talks about in 1 John 5 here, that's, he doesn't ever talk about God being in a battle. He talks about that when we finally engage and understand that he is already victorious, we can live with that overcoming victorious nature as well. 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if God is victorious, how can we experience that? Uh, I do want to answer the question a little bit more about if God is victorious, then why is there still evil, disappointment, and destruction in this world? And to me, it boils down to this. It's a very deep, we could do a whole series on that, but to try to boil it down into one key thought is this, that there's still evil, disappointment, and destruction in this world because more often than not, we choose as individuals to still fight for the team that has already lost. We still choose to not view ourselves as part of the victor's team. And we are part of the defeated team. And we start, we fight against God. We fight against, we willingly work against the things of God. And we try to set other things up as victorious. We make men, women, possessions, and our positions of our life our victor. And we say that's what's most important. And in doing so, we continually mar this perfect creation, his perfect plan, his perfect wisdom. And even though our actions do not have any impact on him, they do have an impact on us. And they actually begin to limit the goodness of God that we can experience in our life as we mar this creation. And yet God is this incredible God who continually restores, redeems, and forgives and sets things right. And so why is there still evil? It's because we create evil in this world. We choose to walk against. We choose to make poor decisions. And so what I want us to do this morning is go on this little journey through this last chapter of 1 John and see how we actually live the, the victorious nature of God in our life. So let's look again at verse 4, um, the last part of verse 4 and 5, and then we're going to jump down to 9, and it'll again be on the screens, and it says this. This is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If we, verse 9 says this, if we believe the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So the key to experiencing the victory in our life is faith. Faith. Now that's a word we probably all heard at some point, And we think, oh, if I just had more faith. If I, that's the problem. I just need to get more faith. Honestly, it's not the amount of faith that he's talking about here. It's the object of your faith. Where are you actually placing your faith? And we, we get caught up in trying to believe more and trust more. And God says, not just more, don't worry about the more, but trust in me only, only. And we think if we can just do more, let's trust God more than this. Like if we can get our trust level for God just up a little bit more than what's in our checking account, if we trust God a little bit more than our job security or this relationship, then that's when I'll truly begin to see God being victorious in my life. And what he's saying is, no, it's not the more, it's the only. Letting God be the only thing that we place our faith in. And that's what verse 9 says. It's like we have this balance. We, we get both. We get the testimony of men in our life, basically the wisdom of men, and we get the wisdom of God in our life. And what do we do? We have to choose what to do with it. And more often than not, and this is why evil is pervasive in our world, we often choose the counsel of men over the counsel of God. And here's how that shows up in our life. I think it shows up in some specific areas. First is we place our faith 
and circumstances of our life. We elevate the circumstances of our life and we make comfort and temporary happiness our God. We want what's comfortable, we want what's easy, we want what's happy, and we make that our God. And the truth is, it's not that God doesn't want us to be comfortable or happy. But when we put it in this, just the circumstances, we don't have the integrity to be able to maintain that in our lives. We, can't, we don't always make the right choices. We're going to fail. If it's up to us, we cannot maintain perfect circumstances in our life. If it's up to you, you're sitting in here in a married relationship today, can you always keep the peace in your relationship? Have you ever messed up at least once? You're like, right? I mean, what about in, you know, with parents and children? Like, or do we always make the right to, we don't. Friendships, whatever circumstance it is, that job, wherever it is, we do not have the integrity built within us because we are all broken people to maintain the right circumstances in our life. So it will fail us. The second thing is this. We place our faith in the systems of our culture, these man-made systems. And we make political structures and laws our God. We say if we could just pass this law, just elect this person, just do this, get this thing abolished, and let's start down this direction, then everything will be better. But the truth is we don't have the wisdom to build these. We don't, we don't have the ultimate knowledge that God has. And so when we try to build these systems, they're always deficient. They'll always need additional help. They'll need amendments. They'll need to be changed over time. I mean, it, it didn't take long, even the U.S. Constitution, to be amended very quickly, even after it was first passed. And we had to make changes. And we don't have the wisdom that we need to create the right systems. The third thing we do is this. We place our faith in the people of this world, in influential people. We make rulers and celebrities our God. And we look at people who are famous and who have achieved something that we want to achieve, and we say, that's where I'll place my faith, or somebody in power, and we make them our God. And the truth is, those people do not have the compassion to love us and serve us the way that God does. I mean, I, I know even when I'm put in charge of things, I, I'm not as good as God at all. Like I fall short very, very quickly. I let my selfish desires begin to drive and become my motives, and I have to keep those in check and find where those are coming out. And so even if you're like, I'm a good person, good people don't make good gods. The fourth thing is this this is probably where a lot of us struggle is that we place our faith in ourselves. We place our faith in ourselves and we make our hearts God. We make our own hearts God. And the truth is this, we don't have enough sacrifice in our hearts to use them for the good of all people. I don't care how good I am. I'm not God. I can't, if I, if I wanted to die for you, I couldn't save you. My life is not perfect. My life is not the redeeming sacrifice of Christ. And so we think we can save ourselves. We think circumstances, systems, people, ourselves can do this. But the testimony of men, which is what these things are, will always lead to disappointment and destruction. Always. 
Maybe not instantly, but inevitably, that's where they'll lead. So, so let's just put our faith in Christ, right? Let's put our faith in God, this victorious God. That sounds so easy, but yet why don't we do this? Why do we fall into these traps of these other four ways? Why don't we all just trust God instead of our circumstances and systems and all this stuff? The truth is it's not that easy of a decision because many of us, and myself included in here at times, we have a view of God that doesn't really make us want to run to him. Sometimes our view of God makes us want to run from him. We think that if we submit to God, then our life as we know it is going to be over. Right? He's going to make me do something I don't want to do. He's going to make me believe something I don't want to believe. He's going to make me end something I don't want to end. He's going to send me somewhere I don't want to go. It is going to make, he's going to start making decisions for my life, and I'm going to have no input and no control. He's going to have this unattainable list of things that I must do to appease him, and I will fall short, and he will be angry at me, and it will not be a good thing in my life. And so that makes us run away from God. And we go, you know, maybe it's just easier. Maybe it'd be better to trust God, but it's easier to trust these other things. And I want you to hear this morning, everything I just said about God right there is a lie. It's a lie. And it comes from the one who has already been defeated. And what I want us to do now is take that next step. We know the key to victory now If we actually begin to experience this, I want to change your mindset that this God is not out to get you. He's not out to take your life away. I want to actually show you what the result of victory is in John John 5, verses 13 through 15. It says this. This is some of the last verses in the chapter in the book, and it says this. I write all of these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So I want you to understand here that the result of victory is not this chained up life that we don't want. It's actually fulfillment. It's fulfillment. That doesn't sound like a life of stress that John just described here. It doesn't sound like a life of disappointment and fear. Instead, it sounds like a life of fulfillment, eternal life. You have the ability to come before God and ask. And not only can you ask, he'll hear. And not only will he hear, he will respond. And he'll meet those needs. That's an incredible thing. It's actually getting us lined up with the true source of fulfillment. And the problem in our life is we do all these other things. We try to plug in and get our power and our fulfillment from the wrong things, and we get the wires crossed. When I used to live in Georgia, we had this shed in our backyard, and I uh, wanted to redo the shed. I have a minor in physics, and so I understand somewhat about electricity. And uh, so I was rewiring the shed with a friend of mine, and we had run all the wires, like everything, and installed all the plugs and we plugged our stuff in, which was dumb that we didn't test it beforehand. It plugged something in, and it didn't work. Like none, none of the plugs. I was like, okay, it's probably just that plug. Nope, every plug did not work. And so uh, I said, why don't you start checking all the wire connections since there's no power going to them, just make sure they're all connected. And I'm going to go to the main panel and make sure everything's okay. And uh, so I pull off the panel, and I start looking at the wire that's running out there, and I realize 
some lines were crossed. They were not hooked by, they're actually hooked onto two different uh, circuits. And so I did it and I was like, I got this. And so I hooked them back on and flipped the circuit. And all of a sudden I hear screaming like I've never heard before. Like, ah! And I was like, whoops, I forgot. He was right in the middle of connecting those wires when I flipped it back on. And man, did he feel the fulfillment of that electricity when we actually hooked it in the right way. Like the power surged like it was supposed to when it was wired the right way. And that's what happens in our life when we get hooked in the way we're supposed to in our understanding of God and expectation that he will fulfill our life, man, it flows through us. It can't be helped but experienced. You will feel it in every part of your body. I mean, it is just the way God works. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture here in Romans that explains this a little bit deeper. Romans 8, verses 14 and 17. Let me read this. And I want to grab a couple of truths out of here that relate to this idea of fulfillment. It says, for all who, have, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, listen to this, then we are heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is not a God who keeps us at a distance, who is angry at us, who we have to appease and maybe just get a little bit of what's left from him. This is a God who is ready to completely fulfill our life. And the truth, first truth we see here is this. We are sons and daughters, not slaves. This victorious king this victorious god we do not come to him as slaves we come to him as sons and daughters we are not made captive we are actually set free and we're not just sons and daughters we're sons and daughters in a royal family the family of god that created all things this is overwhelming as his sons and daughters we create we we receive his care his protection as our father. And the key idea here is that we experience this fulfillment and this idea of him being our father and us, his sons and daughters, by experiencing the compassion of God, his compassion. God has compassion towards you. If you're thinking about those electrical wires, that's the positive, right? That's one of those wires. Understand that God is compassionate toward you and he has made you his son or daughter. But the second thing we see here is not just that you're son or daughter of God, but we are heirs to the kingdom, not beggars. We are not beggars. When we move our faith from man to God and we understand who he is, we do not come as beggars seeking scraps from his table. Instead, we come heirs, just like his son is an heir. And the spoils of war are not hoarded by him and only given out in minuscule portions to to us on special occasions. Everything that he has is available to us and available to us now. And the key idea that helps us understand this idea of us being heirs is know that he is a generous God. He has generosity. Our God, that's the that's the second wire. That's the the negative part of that wire. Not negative, but it's the opposite part that 
that connects in. And when we understand that our God is compassionate and our God is generous, then we plug into that fulfillment begins to flow in to our lives. And we can ask according to his will. He'll hear us and we will receive what he wants to give us. This changes everything. This idea that God isn't in a battle and it's already won. And that you and I have the ability to move from defeat to victory by simply placing our faith in the testimony of God instead of the testimony of man. That we can be sons and daughters of God and experience his compassion. That you and I can be heirs to the kingdom and experience his generosity. This is life-changing. This is game-changing in understanding who God is. So how does this happen? How does this happen in our life? Why are, why are we not plugging into this? I want to go back to the very first part of this chapter, and John lays this out as we come to the conclusion here, as he gives us a pathway to experiencing this victory, and it's in verses 1 through 3. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm so thankful that last line is in there. The way that you and I experience this pathway to victory is by simply following him. We follow. We follow. That sounds very easy. Okay, I'll just follow God. I can find him. Right? I mean, you ever have a day like that when you're like, where are you? Where's the direction? What am I supposed to do here? I, growing up, I always wish I had these three magic coins in my pocket that if I needed a direct answer from God, like I could give him one of those and he would give me like this direct answer. Like, I'll follow you if you just tell me exactly what it is. And the problem is I would probably use all those by 14 on questions that were meaningless really in my life. But we sometimes we have this idea of like, God, I will follow, but where are you? How do we find him? And, and there's a couple of things to go with is, is we should follow him with fervency. Is that means that we are actively seeking him. I mean, that we wake in the morning and we're like, yes, I want to follow God today. It's not that I'm just going to stumble upon him or that I may happen to fall into his direction today, but I follow him with fervency. And he lays out this pathway, this, this fervent following of God here uh, in this passage, and he first he says, understand that Christ has been born of God. The first way we do this is to recognize the authority of God. And it starts by saying this, admitting that there is a God, and you and I are not him or her. It's not us. There's a God, and it is not us. That, that's how we begin to follow God instead of all these other things. Admitting there's a God and it's not me and realizing that he literally interjected himself into our world in the form of Christ. Jesus was born of God. He is God in human form. He is the creator of all things who literally set aside his eternal and supernatural nature and became finite and human so that we may personally experience his presence and know him. So recognize his authority that Christ has been born of God. But then it says here that we're to also, that we love 
whoever has been born of him. That we actually begin to love Jesus. And that's when we redirect our passion. And we follow, following God is about our willingness to refocus our energy. To do this, to follow him fervently, we have to change what we spend our energy on. To set yourself aside and first love the ultimate expression of God, which is Christ to us, is the way that we redirect his passion. Following him means that we love him and we love him passionately. You can't follow God fervently if you don't love Jesus passionately. You can't. Because God, Jesus is the expression of God given to us. Lived and died for us. And to say that we would follow him fervently but not love God passionately is contradictory. He becomes the centerpiece of our lives. And out of that passion, all other passion flows. And that's what I love about following God. It's not that when he says, only me, and that's it. He says, only me, and what does it say, Matthew? Then all of these things will be added unto you. Then everything else that you can, not, not, not a skimpy life, but a life to the fullest in John 10, 10 says, an abundant life. And that word abundant literally means overflowing, uncontainable. When we follow him with a fervent passion, we see that. But the third thing it says, it says that we love God and we obey his commandments. And this takes a step of reconciling our sin to him. I don't always obey his commandments. Pretty sure you don't either. There's times we fall short. And following God means that we also admit to him that when we lead ourselves back into defeat, God calls us to repent of our sins and not to make up for them. Do you realize that that's good news? When God says repent of your sins, he doesn't say then, here's the price you have to pay to be made whole again to me. He says just repent, which repent means this. It's two things. Acknowledge and turn. Acknowledge that it, what you did was wrong and turn and say, I don't want to go in that direction anymore. That's what repentance means. It's not that we've got to, God has got to extract revenge on us. We've got to give recompense to God. We, we repent. And why do we repent? Is it to make God be able to say, I told you so? Is that why we are? No, we repent so that we understand that we, as we mar creation, it's having an impact on us. It's hurting us. The last thing is this, when he says, to understand that his commands are not burdensome. As I said, I'm so thankful that's in there because what it allows me to do then is completely trust him. Following him fervently means that I can completely trust him. More than circumstances, systems, people, or even myself. We realize his commands aren't burdens on us, but instead they clear the path ahead of us. They don't enslave us. They free us. They don't restrict us. They empower us. And this trust is best expressed through one word, and it's the word surrender. Surrender. Surrender is simply, it it sounds like such a weak, menacing word. You never want to be caught in a battle and be like, I have to be the one that surrenders. Remember my brother and I used to play mercy. You ever play that like where you squeeze each other's hands or try to 
like grip each other until one of them says mercy. Like, like, a, like, I think I probably broke my knuckles four times because I was just stubborn enough not to ever say that word that I wanted to surrender. I was like, you may be beating me, but I will not admit defeat because that word just seems weak and intolerable for us. But that word, word surrender actually has great power because what surrender means is that we let go of us, our systems, our things that we're placing our faith in, and we grab hold of him. And we take that fulfillment that we've been longing for in our life, and we experience the grace and peace of Christ. So my question for us today is this. Have you ever experienced the victory of God through personal surrender? Have you personally ever experienced the victory of God through personal surrender? Have you been kind of sprinkling God on the parts of your life? Like, oh, I need some help here. I'll, I'll bring some God into here. You know, and this isn't going well. Let me get some God into here. And hoping that he brings some fruit there just by, maybe if I do this, he'll like me more, and so he'll help me here. That's not surrender. That's bargaining with God. If you want true fulfillment in your life, you want your life to be transformed and you have peace like never before, to experience grace like never before, then it takes personal surrender. God's full victory is available to you today.